guess what? It's another episode of Smelly Later. We're back. <laughs> you clicked it. This is what you got. I know. I know that you're probably sick and fucking tired of hearing us say like, we've been, we've been waiting for this one. But when I say that we've been waiting for this one, we really have, I actually didn't think this one would ever happen. This is like long game. Like I was afraid to reach out. Like, oh, it's so funny how, when you ask people like, Hey, do you want to be on this random podcast? (laughs) It's so surprising who is like, yeah, sure. I'm game. And then who's like, what is this? what are your who are you what are you about yeah and yeah it's always the people that we're so nervous about that are like yeah sure (laughs) yeah i can't i can't but before we get into all that how are you sable on this gloomy sunday oh god i'm so tired man yeah i'm lazy i kind of love when it's raining out because i'm like oh good i don't have to leave the house (laughs) I don't have to be guilted by this beautiful weather to take a walk to nowhere and then return having done nothing and probably spent money. Because every time I leave my house, it's like $20. I'm like, what did I do? (laughs) Where does it go? To go into the world. Pretty much. I'm like, oh, I'll get a coffee. I'll get a little snack. I'll get a little thing. And then I'm like, wait, why did I just spend so much money? (laughs) Well, I'm happy to be back with you for this episode that we've been waiting for for quite a long time. Yeah. What have you been waiting for it? I've just been talking about it for so long. <laughs> I was like, oh, I guess I better email him. We love doing our weird scent-related niche episodes where it's just like people who you wouldn't normally get to talk to every day about scent and who see it in a completely different way than you know of. So cool. Yeah, yeah. That's why we're here. Tynan, what do you smell like today? Today, I smell like one of my all-timers, I've name dropped it on the show before. It is my very famous vacation fragrance. It is Beyond Paradise by Estee Lauder for men, shockingly. (laughs) I talked about it a little bit last episode on that tangent we went down Mm -hmm. and today I'm wearing it. It's funny because truly since I was like 16, I haven't really worn it. That's a lie. Since I was like in my late teens, I haven't really worn it unless I was on vacation, as the name would tell you, or like <laughs> out of town in some way. Just because it's very aquatic and, and sea foamy, and it just makes me think of anywhere else than where I usually am, and mm. I love it so so deeply. I mean, we could go through the notes, but this is one of the ones where it's like, what's the point? It's just... Sometimes that just doesn't do it. Sometimes delineating the notes almost confuses you more as to what a scent is. And like takes away from it. I guess like I will sort of go back to what I said last episode where it is very fruity. It smells like ocean air and, Mm. and salty water. And I hate you know, saying anything is masculine and feminine. But (laughs) when this fragrance came out in 2004, I was, I mean, if I could do math, I could tell you, I was like (laughs) in my early teens. I was like, (laughs) oh, it's 14. When I smelled it, I took it to be like very feminine, even though it was for men. And so it's just that sort of bright, smooth, really satisfying fruity floral. Mm. And I love it. This is another one that I will be wearing for the rest of my life. It, I don't believe it's on shelves anymore. And it's starting really? to get up there in terms of price. Online. Wait, is it discontinued? I don't think they do it anymore. So yeah, it's Bummer. right now it's clocking in like average about 140 online. Damn. And I'm... I'm stupid enough to actually pay that for it. Wait, but have you tried emailing Estee Lauder to be like, what's the deal? Uh, um, Give it up. Give it up. I like would rather not email Estee Lauder for the rest of my life. <laughs> you know what I mean. Fair, fair, fair <laughs> enough. Respectfully. No, I, I, I could. I could. Who's going to be any wiser? They, they got some. They got some rattling around in the warehouse somewhere. You've got a back suck. I know how you people work. Oh, they absolutely do. Okay. Yeah. No, but I'm definitely going to, when I do run out of it, which is, I'm, I am getting pretty low in the bottle almost 20 years later. <laughs> so uh, I should, I should grab another one. It's so smart to have like a vacation scent that mm-hmm. you just, you never wear it while you're here. You only wear it where you're somewhere else. So like, it just always reminds you of that place. 
I love that. I agree. I agree, Sable. I am very smart. It's, <laughs> it's like when people have a wedding fragrance. Oh, true. So, okay, here's my question though. Like, are you supposed to wear the wedding fragrance ever again? Mm, good question. Assuming you only get married one time? Or also, do you wear it every time you get married? What yeah, like what what happens if you get divorced? <laughs> do you just get a new fragrance? Every new wedding is a new fragrance. <laughs> That's what I would do. I don't know. Right? I like buying fragrances quite a bit. I don't need an excuse. Yeah. Crickler like, does that. Remember, like, all of the custom bespoke fragrances they make? Ben Crickle, he was like, yeah, so many people get them for their weddings. Like, a bespoke mm. fragrance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, I wonder if the fragrance outlasts their marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Some fragrances last a while. That's true. Sable, what do you smell like today? I smell like fresh cannabis suntal. Yes. I was really surprised with this one. It was like one of the OG cannabis weed smelling fragrances. And was this, I feel like it was sort of popular in a niche community of oddball fragrances, but it's so delightfully fresh and unexpected. Mm -hmm. It does have that herbaceousness of weed, but it's also, I don't know, there's like a a soft dewiness about it too that makes it, very cozy yeah. i don't know it's almost like a toasted green like how people say like they're green scents it's like it's a green scent but it's like a little toasty as well that's such a good way to describe yeah it. yeah I, I love it on first whiff i'm like oh wow yeah that definitely smells like some really dank weed in like that good california weed kind of way when you smell weed and you're like oh that's good shit like that's government shit <laughs> not like a lot of the shitty weed that I smelled here but do you smoke weed can we can I ask if we can cut it out <laughs> have I smelled weed <laughs> no do you smoke weed oh not really because it makes me really sleepy or yeah. paranoid yeah I'll fuck with edibles more than I will smoke mm-hmm. weed which is not probably more dangerous actually <laughs> like now that I think not, yeah. not getting edible yeah, I went a little too far with edibles once, and I've never been the same since. Oh, that's how they get you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I was given a cookie that was from like a <laughs> distributor in LA, and the person who gave it to me was like, "Don't eat this by yourself. It has 250 milligrams of oh my in god in a cookie the size of like a Chips Ahoy cookie." Which, first of all, was the mistake. I'm like, don't put that much concentrated weed in this small of a cookie. Make it a huge ass cookie. So I split the cookie with somebody. <laughs> so I ate half of it and I lost my fucking mind. Say, well, that's so much weed. I was high for 36 hours straight, but like but- uh, uncomfortably high to the point where I think I was hallucinating. The, the normal like edible dose is like 10 milligrams. Like five milligrams even. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Oh my I, God. I've really played myself. <laughs> Truly. I was like drug dumb. I'm still drug dumb, honestly. Same. So I was like, also- this will be fine. It was not fine. Oh and ever God, since I then. I hate that for you. Yeah. Ever since then, I always get like a little bit paranoid down what it do me. Oh my god, I'm like baseline paranoid, so I don't need weed to help me out with that. I can't even go to like a party and walk up to the snack table without being like, is there weed in this? People are like, tiny, that's salami. There's nothing more unpleasant than eating an edible, not realizing it was, and not being prepared for the next however many hours. (laughs) Yeah. Or there's nothing worse than like being drunk or high and not wanting to be anymore. I think that is like the worst feeling. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What have I done? Anyway, cannabis scentile. I'm actually surprised yeah. that that hasn't had another moment. Just with Same. how quickly in the last... So I only say last five years. I know it's been around much longer than that. But in the time that I've discovered cannabis scentile, I guess six years now, so in, in 2014, 2015, whatever, to now, the conversation about weed has changed quite a bit. I know it's ever-evolving. And I feel like scentile, because of... <laughs> A very sexy yes. fragrance that we yes. talk about often on the show. Santal uh-huh. uh, is such a buzzword now. It's it's it uh, is. So I feel much. like it's like a marketing word almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's people so will know it sells. Yeah. yeah. So it's like cannabis, cannabis Santal. It's like I'm surprised that that is not. If they just know. Did a marketing push that could. Be I like, yeah. I also feel yeah. like Fresh doesn't really push their fragrances that much. Like they I, really really lean on skincare. I agree, and they have so many that I don't know yeah. why they wouldn't do that, and they're so good. Know. I know. I mean, skincare is huge now. 
and it has been for the past like three to five years, I feel like just as a category, people are obsessed with skincare, but I feel like fragrance is also having an up these days. So I would agree. I think we're only just seeing the start of it. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, We're just at the beginning of it. Cha-ching. Buckle up girls. (laughs) Yeah. Get ready. But I was saying, I was texting you this like the other week, how the only other weed fragrance I'd smelled was Acro Haze. And I feel like fresh kind of a Suntel is like the girl gender reveal to Acro Haze's boy gender reveal Mm -hmm. of the weed fragrances. Because Acro Haze is so much more sharp and crispy and it has like more smoke. I don't know. There's like a... yeah. There's a warmer, yeah. leathery aspect to it. It's really pungent. It starts, yeah, pungent. it starts out super pungent. Yeah. Like a like a broken vine. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, it does work its way down to something very, like, suede and Yes. Nice. It's, be- it's really beautiful. It's really, really cool. Yeah. But Cannabis Antal is a little bit sweeter and a little muskier and softer. Mm-hmm. So I was like, ooh, the two genders of cannabis perfumes. Yeah. <laughs> I love I love your new like gender reveal concept. <laughs> so I like I can't get enough of it. There's a pair. Every everyone has a pair. <laughs> anyway, our guest on this episode also has a penchant for describing fragrances in such a ugh. This is so good the way he describes fragrances. <laughs> uh, I'm so, okay. I just like sort of want to get into it, but I guess we should like in, like say who a little the bit. Hell it is. Sure. Today on the show we have Luca Turin. He is a biophysicist and very famed fragrance writer. He, in his own words, put out what was probably the first sort of contemporary published work surrounding fragrances mm-hmm. in the early 90s. I think I'm quoting him correctly. And then I think that's right. Followed it up with um, what, I, what I think, and I think what many people think is the sort of benchmark fragrance Bible yeah perfumes the a to z guide i think it's just called perfumes the guide i've seen it both ways but he did that with his wife spoiler alert who he met via a perfume blog i love that i love little meat cutes like that i know so cute i know i first heard about luca from our friend natalie who was a fellow xo writer and I copped the book in, I think, like 2011, 2012. And I've gone back to it so, so many times over the years. And Luca has always been like my North Star to get on this show. And then I reached out last week. And he was like, <laughs> yeah, let's do it. So I was like, word. We sent a very formal email and he was like, sure. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, we've talked enough and I, I, I just want to sort of get right into it. So yes. I mean, He's a VIP MVP in the fragrance world. He's so listen up, people. <laughs> He's the goat. Let's do it. So my name is Luca Turin. I'm currently a professor of physiology in a medical school not far from London in a place called Buckingham. And I have been here since uh, only a few weeks, since the end of December, actually. Mm-hmm. And before that, I was in Greece in a research institute near Athens. Quite a climate change. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, huge. <laughs> and correct me if I'm wrong, but you're a biophysicist, is that right? That's right. That's right. That's right. What What does that mean? <laughs> well, it's a good question, actually. That, that when, when I read that question, I was thinking to myself, how would I define that? Well, there's, two, there's, I think there's two ways to define it. One is the the rather cynical point of view taken by biologists, which is that biophysics is any piece of research in biology that involves at least one mathematical equation. So that's that's the sort of minimal definition. The, the way I would define it is uh, biophysics is what happens when you have unemployed physicists. <laughs> Historically, the reason why biophysics exists is because there have been at many times n- not enough jobs in the defense industry <laughs> for physicists. And so they've looked over the hill to this verdant valley of biology, which by their own lights, is full of rather stupid people. Um, <laughs> and, and so physicists being rather smart on the one hand and also rather sort of overconfident in some things, they figure, ah, what this what biology needs is a few more like us. And then they, of course, they get lost in the weeds and you never hear about them again. So that's biophysics. Wow. 
That's so funny. And how does how does being a biophysicist bring you to fragrance? Like, what happened first for you, fragrance or science? Or I think I think it was um, it was weird because it, I've I'd always been interested. I'd always I'd always been sort of vaguely aware that we didn't understand how smell worked. Okay, so but it was a peripheral vision sort of thing. It wasn't a main interest of mine at all. And then I got into fragrance because at the time. I had a friend, a Belgian friend, who had an antiques business, and she used to basically she started buying all the all the perfumes. This was in the eighties. She started buying all the old perfumes she came across in, in flea markets, and in those days they were absolutely dirt cheap. So she would give me dozens of old perfumes, and and I, I started collecting them, and and that was that was really great. And I think as I carried on with this collection of fragrances, I realized that I had some sort of brain deformity that made it sort of easy for me to talk about perfume. And I mean it literally, I, I'm not being coy. I, what I mean is, I think for some reason, I find uh, perfumes, so to speak, rather readable. I, I make a very clear distinction in my own mind between a smell and a fragrance. A smell is a smell, and a fragrance is a message in a bottle written into the bottle by a perfumer with a particular intent. And mm. so you're supposed to be able to read it at the receiving end. Right. And I found that easy and I like turning that into words. And and I was I think I was becoming so boring to my friends gassing on about fragrance all the time that one of them uh, helpfully suggested I write a book and get it out of my system. So that was how it began. And it's only after the first perfume guide I wrote, which was published in 92, it's only after that that I actually got into smell as a, a scientific problem, seriously. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I realized that that really we didn't have a clue how it worked. I think a lot of people are realizing that now. <laughs> well, so scientists are yeah. rather careful about not explicitly stating what they don't know. Right. Partly because it's slightly embarrassing and partly because they hope whatever it is that they don't know but would like to know, they hope to crack it themselves without anybody else <laughs> barging. And so the, there's a sort of almost a conspiracy of, of, of silence around really big mysteries. Mm -hmm. Some big mysteries like consciousness have become big mysteries in themselves. Okay, they, mm -hmm. Everybody talks about them. But certainly at a smaller scale than that or quantum mechanics, there are many things in biology where you know, if you, if you get your colleagues a little drunk, they'll tell you, we have no idea how this works and we'd love to know. Wow. And I think olfaction, olfaction was roughly on that level. Sable, we should just get a bunch of scientists really drunk on the show. We should. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's actually, it's, it's, actually, it's actually really interesting because science is a mixture of, of, uh, of enormous satisfaction when you, when you have an insight and tremendous frustration the rest of the time. Mm. And so people, you know, need to loosen up a bit before they tell you what's really frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. Look, what I have always connected you to first is your book, Perfumes, The Guide. And if the listener doesn't know, it's essentially an A to Z guide about not every fragrance ever made, of course, but you nail a lot of the big ones. And you and your colleague, Tanya Sanchez, give them a star rating one to five and a little blurb about why you do or do not like them. And I feel like that has become the sort of contemporary baseline of... Uh, sort of, it is like the fragrance Bible in a way. Can you tell us just a little bit about how that book came to be and how you landed on which fragrances to include and not, and just why you did that in general? I was between jobs in 91. I, I'd written a first perfume guide, a very short one in French, as a matter of fact, while I was between jobs in Paris and really enjoyed it. And it only had like 240 fragrances in it. And, and it was more of a sort of uh, an essay in whether one could write short little paragraphs about fragrance. Mm. And uh, it was described later as the best-selling perfume guide in France, which made me laugh because it was the only one. So <laughs> being the bestseller becomes relatively easy when there's exactly zero competition. And it didn't sell very well for that matter. But, but within the trade, it had a curious effect that that people rather enjoyed not being confined to the sort of press release nonsense. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a, it was, anyway, so for many years that between 92 and 2008, I was, I had a vague sort of hankering after writing a, a much bigger one. And eventually I met Tanya Sanchez through an online, she had a blog and I had a blog and we started having a correspondence and then we met and then we got married. 
And so one thing led to another, not exactly in that order, but we decided (laughs) to write a much bigger book together. And 2008 was a transitional period because the great classics had not yet been damaged too much. Some of them had been reformulated, I mean. Mm-hmm. Mm. Ifra and all that stuff was at its in its early days, meaning you you could still use materials like you know oak moss, sandalwood was still abundant. I mean, those in retrospect were the glory days, you know, the the perhaps the end of the golden age of fragrance. So, mm. you know, if you just looked at the undisputed classics, that was probably already like four or five hundred fragrances. And then the, the remainder were whatever people sent us, because we, we, you know, we called up PR people, and they sent the stuff, or they didn't. And if they didn't, right. well, they're not in the book. In some cases, <laughs> in some cases, we actually, you know, swallowed our pride and actually went to <laughs> smell the stuff in the shops because mm-hmm. we really wanted to know. But mostly, at the time, uh, a lot of people said, "Well, why?" You know, first of all, people, you know, some PR people would say, "Well, you, you send us the copy; we have to check it before you publish it." And the answer was. Mm-hmm. No, and some other people just couldn't see the point. I mean, they didn't, they didn't want us to write about fragrance. They wanted us to write what they'd written. And then, so I was very, very fortunate because a friend of mine was the son of a very great writer and poet, um, Alistair Reed, who recommended a wonderful agent, Tom Colchi. And Tom, who had never given half a thought to fragrance in his entire existence, and was perfectly happy to stay that way, he liked the idea. He just, you know, he was open-minded enough you know, to really like the idea. When he started reading it, he thought, this is cool because it's a, a different type of critical writing and it hasn't been done before. So he got us a, a deal with the Viking Penguin, which, which was really amazing. I mean, they took a huge chance on it. And then the thing bifurcated, the book really became two different things depending on England because it was sold also in England by Profile Books and mm-hmm. Viking in the US. And in England, they loved the bitchiness. You know, the, the Brits love bile and sarcasm. <laughs> and in America, they don't like that so much. And they wanted, I think the people wanted more of a perfumer, of a, of a sort of a which perfume should I wear, yeah. or a, a consumer guy. Right. So yeah. it was kind of an interesting hybrid life form somewhere between you read it for the fun of it and or you read it because you want to know what the hell to, to go and buy. OK. Right. Um, right. And, and, that, and that ambiguity is still there in a way today. It, it is funny to me because even the first time I read it, I, I was not used to, you know, Sable and I have spent so much of our time writing online. But yeah. we don't hear the sort of tone that you struck in the book in print all that Ever. often and it was so yeah, yeah it was so refreshing to read and exciting fragrance writing largely editorially is kind of like a regurgitation of press releases from mm-hmm. pr and they'll say these really romantic fantastical things and i'm like but what does it smell like like who is the yeah, person yeah i think there's, there's there are two <laughs> yeah there are two things that that, that really um, damage perfume writing one is the obsession with what materials are in the perfume Okay, mm. what, what what are the raw materials? Which we just, I always compare that to, you know, to, to talking about classical music. If you say Brahms symphonies contain cellos, you know, yeah. that that doesn't really tell you much. <laughs> about, yeah. You know, yes, they do, they, you know, so does the string quartet, you know. But so that's one aspect. And then the, the, the other aspect, which, and the, sorry, this is an aspect which I find largely irrelevant because. You know, there are many, many ways of using rose, and they span the entire emotional and poetic range of, of perfume, for example. Then the other aspect is the aspect of seduction, which I've always been very skeptical about. Um, yeah, it's a lot. They really lay it on thick. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I consider, I think it's the opposite. I think perfume is a tremendously good repellent. Mm. I think the selection, the sexual selection happens the other way, that People put on a perfume and, and it's who stays away that matters. <laughs> so I have this evolutionary theory that says that the, the masculine perfumes are so bad right now. They are. That, <laughs> that the only women who can come in, you know, within distance of a man who wears that stuff basically have no sense of smell. <laughs> so, so by sexual selection, we will have, we will create a master race of people without sense of smell and also who are complete idiots with bad taste. So this is really 
I think this is going to happen very quickly. Sexual selection is quick. So only a couple of generations of breeders. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It's funny because we were talking to someone, Rachel Hertz, who studies smell, and she was saying how sexual selection occurs better when nobody wears fragrance because, I mean, from like a reproductive standpoint, it's usually women sniffing out men to see like, you know, who's going to have the most potent genes and DNA. So if they're wearing so much fragrance, you can't smell that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't, yeah. I'm not sure I believe in that one either, but yeah. <laughs> I, I certainly think that people have got used to, to some seriously bad fragrances in the last decade or so. You mentioned that right now you said masculine scents are pretty bad. Before we unpack gender, can you just maybe talk about what makes a bad masculine scent to you? Like what, what, what is trending right now that makes them so abhorrent? Well, there are two, there, there are two problems. There's the overly powerful materials, which really are essentially replacements for sandalwood and oak moss, which have been banned. So, mm -hmm. so that these woody ambers are a technical necessity. And perfumers have made a virtue out of this necessity, and they really like woody ambers. They're actually extremely hard to use in fragrance. And many fragrances are ruined after the first half hour by some monster woody amber, which goes on forever. That's one thing. And the second thing is that I think among young men, a strong drive to conformity. I have a feeling, I'm, I'm not sure, because I, I, first of all, I'm not young and, I, and I'm not a, a girl, but I think women would like to differentiate themselves more. You know, they wouldn't mind so much having a perfume which is weird or different or really yeah. strange, you know, whatever. They can't show up to the party wearing the same dress. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Men absolutely don't mind wearing the same dress, Yeah. <laughs> so to speak. And, uh, and, and so... There's a sort of sameness and grayness and sadness, really, I think I would call mm -hmm. it, to, to many masculine fragrances in the last few years. Even within gray, sad, and samey, you can do something quite wonderful. I mean, if you smell, for example, H24, the, the latest Hermes masculine, which is you know, composed by a genius called Christine Nagel, what she's done within that brief, this sort of secret agent smell, I would call it. You know, be, be as inconspicuous, be as, in a way, as boring as possible. Okay, <laughs> she's done an absolute uh, masterwork. But many masculine fragrances are not like that. They're just hideous. Hmm. They're samey and they're yeah. Hideous. They kind of smell like a car air freshener to me. <laughs> a lot of male scents. Yes. Now that's <laughs> the other the other thing which has happened, which is a generalized cheapening of the formula. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a price point per kilo in the formula below which it becomes extremely hard to do something good, especially in the dry down. You can have you have five minutes that are perfectly tolerable and then things just absolutely fall apart. In your book, Perfumes, you talk about the rise of sport fragrances for men. And I love this because you described it as... Uh, a bloodless gray whip it like shivering little things for the, gene the generic guy who wishes to meet a generic girl to have generic offspring. Oof, such um, a burn. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a tremendously snobbish burn for which I will probably burn in hell. <laughs> but I don't mind. It was, I guess it was worth it. <laughs> yeah. Conformism has always been a bit of a mystery to me. I mean, it's not that I'm immune to it. I mean, I remember when I was a kid, for example, I lived in Geneva and I developed a very strong Swiss accent, which now to my ear sounds completely ridiculous. There's a, a great desire to, to, to fit in that, that people have at any age. I understand it less and less now. But on the other hand, why not? I mean, if you're looking for a mate, you know, maybe that's a rational strategy, not to be alarming, you know? Right. Not to be strange. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what works. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, I don't want to be judgmental. What I, I think that phrase was tremendously judgmental. But not I untrue. Think, I think that's actually a rational strategy of, of one particular kind. Yeah. I think conformity, like people, it's just the fear of being outcasted by society, which yes. would mean that you would be alone. So if conforming yes. means smelling the same, because you're like, oh, this guy smells like this. He's wealthy and has a beautiful trophy wife. So maybe if I wear that cologne, I'll do that too. Yeah, yeah why not? I mean, there's two ways to make the wrong choices. One is ignorance. You, 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 you don't know anything about it. You've just been given a perfume, you know, mm -hmm. and it happens to be a bestseller or whatever. Uh, and the other one is actually a choice. You, you want to smell a particular type. You want to belong mm -hmm. to a particular type. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. And, that, and that's uh, that's rational. I have this theory with that perspective in mind. I have this theory with Paco Rabanne, the one that like. <laughs> you mean the the for men? Yes. Paco Rabanne, the one is the scent that all of those pseudo alpha dudes wear thinking that huh. they're hot shit. And I'm like, all of you wear the same fragrance and it's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. Well, OK. I mean, yeah. men's fragrances can be embarrassing. But then I think guys can be embarrassing whatever happens true <laughs> the ubiquity the fragrance itself is not to blame it's just truly the ubiquity of its choice yeah 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 on the, on the other hand if i may in defense in defense <laughs> of conformity the number the amount of perfume that is sold purely on the basis that this is not your mother's perfume or no one else wears it and all that stuff first of all by this time it's probably your mother's perfume anyway yeah. um you know all these niche things and secondly the fact that nobody else wears it maybe for a good reason. Um, <laughs> so I've always considered perfume to be, in its very essence, what what uh, Coty originally said in the early years of the 20th century. It's an industrial product of high quality. The idea that perfumes are somehow unique, that you marry a perfume for life, mm. that it's you, that you know, is largely nonsense. They're like a piece of music, you know? you're lucky enough to be able to wear a piece of music. And, you know, you could wear Rachmaninoff's second concerto. Why not? Right. And so can anyone else. I think this obsession with uniqueness is completely shallow. Hmm. It is. Also, anyone I know who did not grow up in America says that America specifically has such a valorization of individualism that... That's why so many other countries like culturally will look to the U.S. for trends, even though I'm like, is this good? Hmm. Yeah. Is it just interesting? <laughs> yes, yes. But yeah, you know, no, I agree. But, 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 you know, the fact for me, if you say to me, oh, this fragrance is great and it's a huge success, I'm delighted. I, I couldn't be because, you know, the fact that great talent is rewarded by enormous sales is mm-hmm. something that we, we should all rejoice. Uh, yeah. Uh, in. So when you have a great fragrance, yes, people like it. That's why they wear it, for God's sakes. <laughs> it's because it's good. Can you think of a fragrance that is both incredibly beautiful and created by someone super talented as well as super commercially successful? Ooh. Well, there's been, I mean, almost every Guerlain perfume has been like that. Many Estee Lauders. I mean, Estee Lauder is an enormously underrated company among the aficionados because dowdy packaging way too cheap yeah they'd rather spend 200 bucks than 70. i mean the lauders right from you know youth to onwards the galas just about almost every galin major galin has been uh, a success and a landmark Mm -hmm. with some exceptions but actually the the history of of fragrance i mean joy by jean patrou was until the until it was recently destroyed, simply uh, erased from the earth by 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 Dior because they needed the name mm. for their own oh. utterly shitty fragrance called Dior. <laughs> <laughs> they actually, you know, this is an extraordinary act of vandalism. They they bought Jean Patou in order to remove the name from circulation. Jesus. Okay, wow. they, this is this is Capitalism. this is like. This is like, imagine, imagine you say you wanted to write a, a shit book called Ulysses, you know, just take a random example. And you, you bought the rights to James Joyce and you torched them all. And then you published a piece of crap uh, with the mm-hmm. same title. That's what Dior did. So anyway, <laughs> this is, this, <laughs> sorry, I've gone off on a tangent, but actually. No, we love uh, it. There have been many, many, many masterpieces. Uh, I mean, Chalimar, for example, started in 1925, mm. still going strong. Uh, Chanel 5 started, what, 21? Right. Post-war, you know, 19. Cristal. Um, for men, the Aramis line, mm. terrific fragrances, still for sale. Even things like, you know, I mean, even relatively trashy things like Stetson, you know, I mean, come on, that's a great fragrance. So, so yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think commercial success is in any way inimical to artistic brilliance. There are some interesting, strange exceptions. There's, for example, Fleur de Rocaille by, by Caron was always their bestseller, and it is the most anodyne, boring thing. I never understood that. Um, 
mm-hmm. there's some odd fragrances that seem to that seem to do well for no particular reason. Yeah. That makes me think of Terry Mugler Angel, which yeah. was so people hated it when it first came out. And oh then, man, I loved it. Yeah, I a few years remember. later. It's still I think it's still their most popular fragrance. Yeah, and it still absolutely. is today. It should be. It should. Yeah. I remember when I first smelled it. I had it was a reaction. I, I don't think I don't remember ever having that reaction to any fragrance. I started laughing uncontrollably. <laughs> I just thought this was such, you know, humor in fragrance is 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 quite rare. It's mm. it's it's almost as rare as in music. There's not much music which is very funny and at the same time very good. In fact, one tends yeah. to I personally like sad music <laughs> for that reason. But Angel was such a joke. Okay, such a <laughs> wonderful joke that um, you couldn't help but just love it and and, and laugh, and and I, pe- people picked up on that. I think. Mm-hmm. But when you say joke, what I, can you expand on that a little bit? What do you mean? Well, so th- later, I, because I, start, I I actually met some of the people who'd been involved. So <laughs> the, the story of Angel, which I think by now is well known, is is that Thierry Mugler, like everybody else at the time, wanted a chocolate fragrance. Yeah. Um, it, there was a very strong fashion in the in the uh, late 80s for foodie kind of fragrance. And Mugler, so Mugler wants a chocolate fragrance, and he goes to Quest, uh, the perfume composition firm, he says, do me a chocolate. And they're doing these chocolates, and they're all soggy, depressing stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Vanillic, sweet, bleh. And he's not happy, and uh, nobody's happy. At one point, Olivier Crespe decides, in, in real desperation, I think, to take the base that they made, the chocolate base, and mix it with a floral uh, base that he otherwise put together. Mm-hmm. And, and this, by the way, the, is, is a very standard thing that you can do in perfumery. You take a, the sort of the orchestration from one side and you put the soloists from another melody <laughs> and they work well together. Okay. So I'm using you know, musical metaphor. But anyway, so he put together these two things and he showed them to Yves de Chiris, who was art director at the time. And Yves has an absolutely uncanny understanding of what he can tell the, the great from the merely good. And he said, this is it. And, and because the contrast between the totally inedible synthetic white flowers and the totally edible chocolate thing was terrific. And also at the time, Quest had just come up with a molecule called neocasparine, which was a, a very strong black current mm. note. And they put that literally as a sort of cherry on the top. And the whole thing was irresistible. Mm. Yeah, it is a decadent fragrance. Yeah. And it's, it lasts just, forever on your skin. It lasts forever. Yeah. It's been imitated a million times. Yeah. In Paris, it had a special impact because it became the fragrance of all West African women. Um, mm. Six foot tall, uh, broad-shouldered, wearing these beautiful monochrome, you know, and with a turban of the same color. And it, it was absolutely regal uh, in that mm. context. And I think people, I think Angel, you know, when it ended up being worn by a, a small sort of n- normal you know, white women, you know, it, 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 I didn't, I never understood that part. To me, mm-hmm. you have to be the queen of Sheba or at least feel that. Yeah. I think Angel, it's like having large shoes to fill. Like you kind totally, of have to perfect. step into that fragrance when you wear it. But also remember, yeah. it came after these years of drought where everybody was wearing a Miyake, which, you know, which smells like a silver spoon, you know, so it's... Um, <laughs> So, so, so it was. So it, was, it was such a. It was in a way punk fragrance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to, I can to, see what you mean by like have it having a sense of humor now yeah, compared yeah. to the context of what was available. Yeah, yeah, the whole thing was, it had become sort of sort of phobic, and mm-hmm. and there was nothing phobic about Angel. It was all all sales to the wind. <laughs> We've sort of been circling this a little bit in our conversation thus far, but I would just love to hear your perspective on the gendering of fragrances mm. historically and sort of where we're going with it now as the cultural conversation around gender sort of widens quite a bit. And that is now being translated through the more and more, you know, quote unquote, genderless fragrances. What has I don't even mean by like notes, but what has defined a masculine versus feminine fragrance historically? And how do you see that sort of in today's landscape of gender, maybe not being so like the consumer not wanting or caring about a gendered fragrance, if that makes any sense. 
well, I mean, originally fragrances were, relatively speaking, genderless. Not just at the beginning of the golden age of Western fragrance, which is the late 1880s. Things like Jiki, for example, Galen's Jiki, were mm-hmm. deliberately unisex right from day one. Okay, They became much more gendered as time went on, but mostly post-war. Uh, post-war was a very big... Uh, post-war was a terrible time for women. So perhaps the only consolation you had was decent fragrance. And I think we've retreated from that. I don't think the genderless... I mean, it's a lot easier to make a sort of nondescript fra- fragrance and call it unisex. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I think at this point, perhaps one of the good things that's happening is that people can wear whatever the hell they like. Totally. I've met you know, men who wear Chanel 5 and carry it off splendidly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it can be done. It's just a matter of um, attitude. But the masculine fragrances worn by women, of course, are as old as the hills. It's the 1920s yeah. onwards. So. I don't think the genderless type of fragrance is necessarily particularly interesting. It, it seems to be defined by what's not in it, okay? So there are no flowers or whatever, you know, some, some negative definition, which, you know, negative definitions have a certain... They only last a certain time, okay? In the yeah. end, people say, okay, give me a big floral. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I, don't, I think what's changing is that people don't give a damn anymore. They wear what mm. they stink and like. Right. And, uh, and th- th- I'm all in favor of that. Yeah. Yeah. This is more of a personal question, but I've just been dying to pick your brain about it. <laughs> I, throughout your work, you have name-dropped Estee Lauder's Beyond Paradise a couple yes. of times. Yes. Um, I think specifically for men. Well, both, actually. Uh, both. The, well, okay. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead with your question. <laughs> no, I, no I just, my question is, what What about... Because Estee Lauder's pa- Beyond Paradise for men is one of my, like... Alzheimer's. So I was just wondering, what about those fragrances speak to you? What is so good about them? Okay, so first of all, disclosure. Kelly's Becker is a friend of mine. Okay, but people say, well, I say good things about her work because she's a friend of mine, and and you know, it's like saying, well, you know, you say good things about Beethoven because he's a friend of yours. You know, it's like <laughs> I'm I'm sorry, but it doesn't quite work that way. So first of all, they're two very different fragrances. I mean, uh, Beyond Paradise for women was an attempt at creating a, how would I describe it? You know, the light they have inside the spaceships in the, in the Close Encounters, you know, that, that sort of blinding light that, that eats into <laughs> yeah. objects. Okay. 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 So it was, it was an attempt at using a vast array of synthetics at, at doing a, an abstract floral, which was almost overexposed in terms of photography. Mm. and completely smooth where there was no you couldn't tell one thing from another you, you couldn't say oh that's a rose or that's a jasmine it was the maximum of abstraction and luminosity of white flowers okay so it was a it was an extraordinary achievement nobody had done that pro- properly before it was very successful it was very widely imitated Kelly's went on to do several others uh, j'adore most notably and Another one less well-known, Floor by Oscar de la Renta, which I think is mm. actually the, the maximum in that direction. Okay, so mm. th- that particular sort of smooth sculptural, but shape with inner lighting, you know, blinding lighting, mm-hmm. I just thought was absolutely just fantastic. There's, there's no darkness in that fragrance at all. Mm. It, it's all blinding light. Now, people found a... <laughs> Because it was Estee Lauder and because it was very clean, people found it a little bit too soapy, you know, too much hygienic, you know, not quote unquote sexy enough. But to my mind, it was just an astounding technical achievement. Okay. Now, Beyond Paradise Men is, is very much like the H24 that I was talking about mm. by Hermes earlier. It's very yeah. much in the same mold. It's a, I described it as a, a fruit salad viewed through blue glass. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. So, cool. <laughs> so, so, so it's got these things moving behind. There's an overall blue-gray tinge, which is which is very much in the in the standard issue contemporary manner. But there's a shimmer of fruity notes that keeps coming in and out of focus. It's really is both Beyond Paradise Men and H twenty four very much in the same uh, wavelength. Yeah. Beyond Paradise has a stronger sort of banana note up front. 
but H24 is slightly more like Chanel Blue, slightly right. more herbaceous. But they're, they're in the same mold. They're trying to be, they're trying to do a thing which is a fougere, but slightly sweet. And it's not, it's not easy to do. That is such a good way to describe it. Yeah. A fruit salad through blue glass. Wow. Isn't H2, H2, this is like Hermes's first for men fragrance in almost two decades. Yes. Uh, like it's I believe a long so. time. I, mean, I believe so, yes. Christine yeah. Nagel took over, what, four or five years ago? She's... Uh. She's, they are getting uh, more into beauty. Like they they're doing lipstick now. Oh, I didn't know that. Didn't yeah, know. yeah. They I think that was last two years ago. I think so. And I've always loved their fragrances. I have Sur la Lagune, but like Sur la Nile and Sur la Mediterranean is yeah. so good. Yeah, Elena's work. Elena is a is a genius. There's no question. His stuff, I, I always found it a little bit um, too delicate for my taste. It is very delicate. Yeah. And yeah. it reads very wealthy to me, like very old wealthy woman, but in a quirky yes, way. Because yes. <laughs> it's yes. not stuffy, I, I it's light. <laughs> no, it's true. Uh, but it has that sort of, there is a, a particular direction of French artistry which, which privileges refinement yeah. uh, over <laughs> intensity. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. in that, his best was very much like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm very fond of uh, Equipage, the old masculine, uh, and also 24 Faubourg that uh, mm-hmm. Maurice Roussel did in the nineties, which is a, a big, you know, a, very ambitious, very big fragrance and very yeah. beautiful. I, think. I, I don't, I never got into all the Terre d'Hermès and all that stuff. I just thought that was just, <laughs> I, to me, it didn't work. Yeah. Hmm. It does feel like perfume is getting quieter now. Or there's just more options with quieter sounds. It is. It is. It's yeah. getting. It is, it's getting quieter. I think we're about ready for another monster angel. Type yeah, <laughs> I agree. I feel like we're in the heyday of skin scents now. Which yeah, it's true. I'm not sure what. Um, I yes, think it also goes with what you meant about individuality. People have this idea that a skin scent is theirs, and that just by wearing it, it's kind of like it becomes a customized part of your identity. So, like, I can see that, but then also I'm like, but you can't smell it. <laughs> I can't <laughs> that's right. smell you. <laughs> no, no, that's right. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I think, um, I think there's been a very strong anti-perfume. I mean, you know, wearing perfume at work is considered uh, invasive and that kind of stuff. So people are a little bit careful uh, mm. about what fragrance they wear. And, and, you know, that's fine. I've had many a good dinner or concert ruined by it too strong a fragrance so i'm not going to complain on the other hand once in a while you want the full orchestra you know oh yeah yeah that's also maybe cultural too because i realize in asia wearing perfume is not it it is considered rude and intrusive if you're entering someone's space and just like permeating it with your scent yes but home Although, scent is a know, big thing. It's funny because I think that is changing. I think it is. Fermanish just just opened an office in China. Fermanish probably has an office on the moon by now. There. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was weird. It was, it was like 2019, and I was like, yeah. it took you this long to consider China? Well, they've been manufacturing <laughs> in China for decades. Yeah. But yes, I mean, I think that you know there are many. For example, I just received a sample of a an oud made with Hainan oud from the island of Hainan, which is clearly the best oud around at the moment. And mm. apparently it's quite popular. So I think there's going to, we're going to be surprised by, by uh, Chinese fragrances, perhaps not so much Japanese yeah. ones, but definitely Chinese. Yeah. I'm really <laughs> excited what they're going to create there. Yeah. yeah they've they've like partnered with some local brands, but they're like, sorry, it's only available in China. So For now. yeah, well, you know, Another market, which is, I think, from what I hear, is full of interesting fragrances, is the Brazilian market. Uh, oh, Brazil's like the hugest, they have like the hugest industry for perfume, like with Natura. They do, and none of it, not much of it anyway, ever reaches <laughs> a, a <laughs> other countries. Yeah. So, but my perfumer friends tell me the Brazilian perfumery style is really interesting. But, you know, I'm really prepared to believe it. Yeah. Yeah their taste in perfumes i think is like for people who love fragrance it's not just hmm. you know skin scent yes yes right, yes. right. <laughs> i mean they're not exactly understated in no no 
I was watching a TED talk you did a couple of years ago about mm -hmm. vibrational theory of olfaction. Oh yeah. And it sounded so fascinating because it kind of sounded like eventually with this, we could, we could potentially invent new sense. Do you think that's a possibility? The fragrance industry is very similar to pharmaceutical industry yeah. in the sense that they, they, they make thousands of molecules and they find one that's, that respectively cures a disease or smells good. So they're, they're inventing new scents all the time. Mm -hmm. the, the difference that having a theory on how smell works might make is that you, you invent them more efficiently or more cheaply. So I don't think it would make, it would revolutionize the fragrance industry. I think it would streamline. Okay. So right. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> However, <laughs> the one thing that would really revolutionize uh, the fragrance industry is if we could stimulate the olfactory epithelium, the, the part in our, in our nose, which senses smells there's a yeah. small part of your brain that's sort of projects into the, into the airstream. And um, the very strange thing about it is that nobody's ever figured out a way to stimulate it directly. Mm. So that, for example, if I put an electrode, if you, know, if you just pushing on your eye, you see things, okay? Yeah. Right. If you put an electrode in the ear in the cochlea, you hear clicks and people have cochlear implants that allow them to, to hear speech and, and right. music and so on. But if you put an electrode up, up the nose and electrical um, you know, thing and stimulate the olfactory epithelium, even if you know exactly where you are. You get no smell sensation. Oh. Nobody's managed to elicit a smell yeah. sensation by direct stimulation. And furthermore, no one understands why that should be. Okay. Yeah. So direct stimulation, by whatever means, would free you from having to use molecules. Imagine, I mean, let me just channel Elon Musk here for a second. Imagine that you had some electrode array which you, you huff, yeah. and then it gets stuck up there and then you can turn it on at will. Well, that might make things really interesting um, yeah. because then you would not, you would no longer be stimulating the olfactory epithelium with chemicals, yeah. but directly somehow. With, and nobody knows what the result would be, but I guarantee you wow. it would be boring. Um, yeah. That's okay. true. Because yeah, if you're, if you're deaf, you can get a hearing implant, but if you're anosmic, exactly. like, there's no implant there's nothing, for that. Nothing. Wow. Now, what is the vibrational theory of olfaction? Well, Quite simply, there are two main sort of ideas about how smell works. One is that we smell the shape of the molecule, so mm -hmm. that it, it fits into several among the large repertoire of receptors that we have in the nose, and the, the pattern of, and, and it turns on the receptors to which it fits, and the pattern of receptors that are turned on tells you what the smell is. That's one theory, the shape. Mm -hmm. And the other one is it fits, and there's a second step that happens, and which is that the molecule is probed for its an internal vibration. The molecules can vibrate because they're made of masses connected right. by springs. And this is the essence of a technique called spectroscopy, which was until the 1960s was the main technique that people used in the lab to identify a molecule. Right. So it makes perfect sense that if nature could somehow develop a spectroscope that would fit in the nose, it would use it because it's a very handy instrument. <laughs> the problem was that, of course, the spectroscope is a two-by-three-foot machine weighing 200 pounds and plugged into mains, and we don't have that up our nose. Yeah. Um, and so what my contribution has been to show that you could actually make a spectroscope from proteins, from actual receptors. And the reason... Okay, so I've, I've proposed this in 96, and I've you know, labored over it ever since. And the, the main objection seems to be that myself and my colleagues haven't provided a direct proof that the mechanism that we propose is actually there. It's an electronic mechanism. Electrons have to move in order for this to work. Right. And we haven't been able to prove it directly that electrons move. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence, but because it's a big deal, I mean, looking at receptors in this way is a major change in point of view. I think they mostly quite reasonably, reckon that extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof. <laughs> but I think right now, I mean, all scientific work is partly creative and partly destructive. You do your damnedest to demolish the existing theory which you think is wrong, and I think we've pretty much succeeded in that. Mm -hmm. And then you do your damnedest to replace it with a better one, and I think we're, when we're, all, we're not quite there yet. Mm. 
Wow. It's a work in progress. Yes. Yeah, it's a work in progress. Yeah. But you know, science, uh, people always think science, you know, they, when I hear the words, the science is settled, it really, in any field, it really make, it really gets my goat because <laughs> there's, there's never been, I don't think in any field of any interest, there's never been settled science. Right. right. It's always right. evolving. There's always... It's, yeah, I mean, look at quantum mechanics. Yeah. We've been at it for, what, seven decades, eight, and foundational things are being discovered every day. Okay, oh my God. I love when we have sciencey people on this show, but I'm also like, what did you just say to me? <laughs> I'm not going to lie to you, Sable. That's where I am about a third of the time with any guest. But yes, agreed. Like my brain has to buffer. I'm like, wait, wait, hold on, hold on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's so fascinating. And he's like, the, the. I kind of already knew this, but the fact that he just reminded me that there's no, there's no real other way to smell than whatever we're born with. Like there's no implant, yeah, there's no enhancer. Like that's crazy. Ever since we talked to Rachel Hers, I, you know, I didn't really understand the ins and outs of, I don't even know how to say it. Like, our nasal receptors and how fragile and fine they are. I know. And, you know, it, the fact that there's so much that we, I didn't realize that there was so much that we still don't know because as yeah. he said, like no one really wants to talk about what we don't understand. Yeah. You know, I feel like that's true of so much that happens in our world. Oh, yeah. Like we don't want to talk about the things we don't understand right. because we don't want to reveal our own ignorance. Yeah. And was like, well, wow. that could that could be said about a lot of things going no, on in the totally. world right now. Like, hmm. Totally. I also found it really interesting how, oh man, how he said that he just always had a natural knack to speak about fragrances. And don't you find that sometimes that's just all it takes? You yeah. know what I mean? I oh mean, yeah. Obviously, don't get me wrong. Obviously, he is <laughs> smart as fuck. But it's talking about fragrances is in its own way sort of like a bit of an art form, and it you is. don't have it unless you try. You know, and I'm yeah. not saying everyone does have it, but I think there is an artistry and a bravery that goes into saying that something smells like a fruit salad seen through blue glass. You know what I mean? Because who would ever come up with that? But it makes sense. Yeah. Well, I also think, especially when it comes to fragrance. Because describing it well involves a bit of vulnerability in your own. You have to dig deep into like the the metaphors and the connections you make to a scent that have to do with your emotional memories and your emotional experiences. So you're kind of getting a little bit vulnerable every time you're describing a scent. Oh, and I think completely. a lot of a lot of people like are not comfortable with that. So yeah. they just don't they just don't fuck with it. Well, yeah, and I uh, also th I think the same could be said for and i'm sure you're, you agree with this like really any part of beauty i just think being able to stop and say like this is important to me and this is why yeah is, is a vulnerable position because beauty is you know often looked at as, as so vain and frivolous and whatever and, and yeah. we stop and say like oh no this is an important thing and and here's why that is inherently to me very vulnerable oh of course yeah and it's so cool to see someone with his background and his, you know, breadth of knowledge about mm -hmm. so many things take that into the scent category. I just like, yeah, my mind is blown <laughs> in here on this Sunday afternoon. Yeah. I mean, it does not to say that it was illegitimate before, but it like it legitimizes fragrance as of like a chemical art form. Yeah. Like an emotional and chemical art form. Completely. Which, like, we know that it is, but then I feel like a large amount of people just don't see it that way. Right. Right. And they're probably the same people who are like, oh, I don't wear fragrance. Like, oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's people well, living their gray little half-lives, like in right. the Matrix. <laughs> anyway, we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Go buy Luca Turin's book. You will be fascinated by everything he has to say. Also, his descriptions are so entertaining, not even just informative, but they're just really amusing. Yeah, it, re it really is just such a fun, fun read. Check it out. Yeah, buy Luca Turin's book, support Luca Turin, support us. Yeah. You can uh, follow us at... Uh, just send us money. Uh, send, uh, <laughs> just snail mail it. 
Um, <laughs> follow us on Instagram at smellulator.mp3. Follow me. I am at Tiny Buck. And I'm at Sable Tooth Tigra. Until next time, we will smell you later. Smell you later. <laughs>